Good evening. My name is Reggie Culshaw, and this is another late-night edition of Grooves from the Moby Club. It's late, and you really should be in bed, but you're not. So sit back and enjoy some midnight jazz. We started with a jolly smooth track from a combo that's based here in South Mims, the Ahab Trio. It's a cut called Piquad Propinquity, which suggests the closeness of a band of brothers on a voyage in distant seas. And yes, you won't be surprised that I, of all amateur disc jockeys, should be playing their music. I am, after all, a lecturer in literature at the local South Mims Polytechnic, and the subject closest to my heart is, of course, Herman Melville's Moby Dick. I have a little surprise for you, dear listeners. But first, some more grooves. That was the first few moments of an episode of an obscure late-night jazz show broadcast on BBC Radio 3, the Beeb's specialist music channel which had replaced the legendary third programme in 1967. The date is May 2nd, 1973, and the host is Reggie Colshaw. At the time, he was an obscure literature professor here at South Mims, back when it was a mere polytechnic, which, in the British hierarchy of further education in those days, was a distinct step below a university. Culshaw had been educated at Cambridge after a distinguished record serving with Monty in North Africa during the Second World War, and he'd specialised in American literature of the 19th century. On that night in May, Reggie made an announcement which could have disappeared into the ether had not an old friend from his days at Cambridge been listening. Another fine tune from the Ahabs. And now, as I promised just a few minutes ago, an announcement. It's one which many of you might not think too important. But no matter, for those interested in the great works of literature, this will be a revelation. It is a missing chapter from Herman Melville's classic, Moby Dick. Intrigued? Well, you might be. It's the long-lost and certainly infamous whale farting chapter. Haha, <laughs> I thought that would get your attention. I have it here, but first, some more music to whet your appetite. I'm here in Reggie Culshaw's library at his home in Smug Oak Lane, Bricketwood, Hertfordshire, just a mile or so from the South Mims U campus. It's a mahogany-panelled affair lined with books, most of them old and leather-bound, with a large window overlooking the fields of a neighbouring farm. With me is Tom Colshaw, Reggie's grandson, who is himself a professor in American literature. And you are, in fact, an American too, isn't that right, Tom? Darn right I am. My father, Reggie's oldest son, emigrated just after the, um, the farting Moby Dick affair. I was born in Colorado and, well, grew up in American. When were you first made aware of the scandal? My father never spoke of it. In fact, he hardly ever talked about Reggie, his dad, or about books. He had an aversion for books, especially literature books, which I believe is what made me so fascinated by them. 
It's like a forbidden fruit to me. When did you become aware of the scandal? When I was in my teens, I came across a magazine article about great literary hoaxes, and there it was, my grandfather's picture next to an illustration of the great white whale, Moby Dick. Well, how did you feel? Weirdly proud, actually. I, I mean, most of us never achieve any kind of fame or notoriety, and my grandfather, Reggie Culshaw, was listed amongst some of the most notorious literary hoaxes of all time. And what about your father? He was horrified at first, but then he relented and told me the story. I think that for him and for me, that article was a turning point for both of us. How so? He lightened up about the whole affair, and I confirmed my love of literature and decided to make it my career. Did your father approve of your choice? I think he did. He was very tight-lipped about just about everything, but he didn't put any obstacles in my way and funded me through college. Okay, so let's talk about your grandfather's place in the history of literary hoaxes. It's a subject that fascinates me. It's not my main focus, but it's one that gives me a lot of pleasure. Can you give us any examples? A couple of years before the farting Moby Dick, there was the famous fake biography of Howard Hughes. Oh, right, Howard Hughes, the richest man in the world who became a famous recluse. Yeah, he made money in all kinds of ways, including aviation and movies, and was always in the headlines until he disappeared from view in 1958. It was said he grew his hair long, never cut his fingernails, was a hermit in his luxury home, and shunned all publicity. The world was intrigued by his sudden retreat. Then, one day, a writer called Clifford Irving approached a leading publisher and claimed to have been appointed by Howard Hughes as his official ghostwriter for a tell-all autobiography. I vaguely remember this story. Didn't a film get made about it? Yes, with Richard Gere in 2006. The hoax. Simple title. Says it all. Indeed. So, Irving is convincing, and the publisher advances him one million dollars for the rights to the book. And Irving goes off and, well, writes the book. It's all fabricated. I mean, it's based on the actual events of Hugh's life, but it was a fake. The publisher just took Irving's word for it. No. They demanded evidence that Irving was in touch with Hughes. So Irving fakes some of the letters from the recluse, and they handed over the money. And did Irving actually write the book? He did. It took him just a few months, and the publishers announced their literary coup with great fanfare. But... But... But Irving's mistake was to have chosen to fake a living person's autobiography. Oh, I see. It's a bit like that Hitler's Diaries scandal in the early 80s. That almost succeeded because, well, Hitler was dead. If you're going to fake something, make sure the person you're faking, be it another writer or a famous person's autobiography, is no longer with us. What happened? Well, the man who hadn't spoken in public for more than a decade spoke in public and denied that he had had anything to do with the book. So Irving's hoax collapsed, he was jailed for a brief period, and became a notorious faker. And then Richard Gere played him in a movie. I don't know which fate is worse. So that's the context. Uh, let's talk about your grandfather's hoax. Okay. Uh, we should go back to that broadcast because that's when he first released this missing chapter from Moby Dick to the world. Okay, well, here's the recording. And so, dear listeners, to my discovery. While researching a new book on the great works of Herman Melville, I stumbled across a mildewed envelope of what looked like strange lists and, with some deciphering, found them to be Melville's shopping lists. Ha <laughs> ha, you may say. Even great writers make shopping lists. Well, you're right, they do. And some, I dare say, have literary merit. 
I myself have proposed a slim volume which collects them. Keats and Shelley's lists are very revealing, I can tell you. Now, these lists were mundane, but intertwined with them were two sheets of neatly penned paragraphs which turned out to be a chapter from the first draft of Moby Dick itself. And, without any ado, I shall read it here on the radio to you, the privileged few. It would have followed the famous chapter on the size and heft of the whale, but was left out of the final manuscript on the advice of Melville's great friend, the author of The Scarlet Letter, Nathaniel Hawthorne. So, this chapter is called, And Does the Great Whale Fart? And what of this great beast's gaseous convulsions? For surely, as the Leviathan does wax and wane in concert with the swell of the oceans, so the digestive machinations of its sinuous guts, which, if strung out across a prairie, would dissect half a state's worth of rich soil, must, as the good dissecting doctors can attest, produce a small country's worth of foul emissions. Many a whaler has recounted, witnessing the sudden apparent boiling of the sea, Great bubbles that burst upon the surface and seem, in the fierce Pacific sun, to be wrought of steel, rolling up to threaten the keel of even the finest built ship with the threat of being capsized. And what a thing to be capsized by! A great leviathanic fart! A storm which began as rumbling thunder beneath the water and rolled through miles of tubular membrane, building in strength as it wends its way up and down and around and around to be admitted into the depths only to rise with the speed to the briny ceilings of the depths. No fizzle is this flautus, no silent feist, but a roaring digestive hurricane pungent from tons of creatures stripped of their nutrients and now vaporised into fierce gases ready to strike the nostrils of sailors, minding their own business aboard the unfortunate vessel above. They say the Kraken, that mythical beast, took his name from the foul sulphurous crackers that great sperm whales flung from their powerful bodies. The Kraken was a great farting machine, which would first render its human prey, they are after all out to murder him, senseless with multiple petards, vile explosions that strip the nose of all feeling and fog the brain of the Leviathan's enemy. This is warlike flatuosity, wind as a strategic weapon, ventosity marshalled for the sake of survival, a pump and attack as the Germans would class it, breaking wind to break the ship of death. Make of that what you will, dear listeners. And now, more music. If you're a Melville scholar, you'll understand that the idea of a do whales fart chapter isn't such a strange idea. Oh, why is that? You've obviously never read Moby Dick. No, I can't say I have. I haven't even tried, in fact. I know it's a notoriously difficult book. Actually, it isn't. It's just that everyone thinks it is. In my opinion, it's a revolutionary and very modern book. But Melville couldn't resist adding numerous chapters which discuss whales and whaling and even the evolution of whales and their place in the great scheme of God's creation. Many readers think those chapters, some of which are very long indeed, get in the way of the story. You can argue that they do, but for me, they're powerfully written and intensely philosophical. I suppose that's why Reggie thought he could get away with it. We don't really know why he did it. He claimed he did it as a late April Fool's Day joke, as he put it, but I believe he was frustrated by his own writing and also by the hierarchy at the school at the time. He was being pressured to teach business writing instead of literature. South Mims was, as we pointed out, a polytechnic 
which at the time meant that more practical skills were taught to those who weren't suited to more academic subjects that were the norm in the more established universities. And he didn't want to teach business writing, of course. No, he didn't. He saw it as a sign that he had failed, that his literary ambitions had been finally frustrated. Not that he wanted to be a creative writer, but he did want to be an important writer, one who was acknowledged for his style and his insights into literature. Why did the farting chapter hit the headlines? As I said, one of the listeners to his music show was an old friend from Cambridge who, I suspect, knew that the chapter was a hoax from the start. But he happened to be working on a small literary journal which was struggling for circulation. He contacted Reggie and persuaded him it would be a good wheeze, as he put it, to see whether the world would take notice of the farting chapter. It might puncture some reputations, could give Reggie an in with journals that would appreciate his little joke and lead to some freelance work. That is, some proper writing. So Reggie agreed. Well, it was published and, and picked up by a BBC arts programme which broadcast the chapter read by Sir Laurence Olivier, the world-famous actor. It was done as a joke, but the establishment didn't take it as a joke. Yes, it was a strange combination of circumstances. There had been morally righteous campaigners who had been attacking the media for their frequent depictions of sex and use of bad language, and for some strange reason, the farting chapter was the last straw for many. Even Mary Whitehouse, a lady from the English Midlands who had become the voice of this moral majority, complained about the use of language. And we have a clip of that. The thing that I think people would find very offensive indeed, would be the language. Why are children today knowing words of this kind and having this level of, of language? You see, now, can I make this point? Because I think it's tremendously important. It doesn't really matter what four letters make up one particular word. This isn't what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the level of our culture and of our communication. It was a weird time. Imagine an uproar about a fake chapter from a book that practically no one had read causing such a controversy. Though it was a brief controversy. Yeah, it was brief, but I do think that Herman Melville himself would have appreciated the joke. He was an obsessive writer, but a playful character at times, and if he had thought of writing a chapter about farting whales, he very well might have written one and included it in the final manuscript. So that controversy prompted your father to leave England? It did, and I was born an American. I think one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by the episode is that it was a stroke of fate which changed my destiny. How so? My grandfather writes the farting chapter. It gets some brief notoriety. My father's embarrassed, emigrates to the USA, meets my mother, I am born, I see the farting Moby Dick as a strange kind of turning point. One that makes me who I am today. It's hard to explain. But it makes a strange kind of sense, and, and it's a fascinating story. It is. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the South Mims U podcast. But instead of our usual sign-off, let's leave that to Reggie Culshaw, author of the fake farting whale chapter that changed Tom Culshaw's destiny. Call Me Ishmael, and then Call Me Isabel, by the Ahab Trio. A strange title, which suggests that the hero of Moby Dick was uncertain of his, let's call it, 
romantic orientation. Or maybe compass is a more apt word. And, dear listeners, I do urge you to try some of Melville's classic work. It will, I assure you, change your life. For the better. Don't put up with stodgy writing. The words of bland executives. Instead, seek out the glorious, melodious words of the great writers. Good night.